50% of all trips within the city would be by cycling by 2030. Through that method, we are out there in our own city, focusing local, but learning from the global like bicycle mayor network. When I tell people that I cycle and I'm disabled and I literally cannot walk down the block, I think there's still a lot of disbelief around that and a lack of understanding of that. So that's been a big focus of my bike mayor time. It creates a transnational movement around the need for cycling, not just as transportation, but as social transformation. Whether you're in Mexico, Italy, the US, India, having more people on bikes will bring about cleaner air, child-friendly cities, local economic development, health benefits, all of these things that are super simple. We're so joyous about bikes and bicycles are <laughs> bliss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bike talk theme is kind of growing on me again. This is Don Ward and my co-host Nick Richard of Bike Talk KPFK on the KPFK live stream and now on Zoom. So today we have a couple bicycle mayors and we're excited about that. They're both from Canada and they're both part of the Bicycle Mayor Program, which is run by BYCS. What's BYCS? Just bikes. Oh. <laughs> I could not find anything other than the initials. I looked all over there. Nobody it doesn't knows? stand for anything. It's just bikes. Just bikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was Jillian Banfield, who's the bike mayor of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Welcome. Thank you. And then we also have R.C. Kaname. Did I say that yep. right? Yes. Bicycle Mayor of Waterloo, Canada. I don't. So welcome, you guys. Thanks. Thanks. So tell us about this Bicycle Mayor program. Arcee, you want to go ahead? Oh, sure, sure. The Bike Mayor program originated in the Netherlands. I think, was, I think a number of years ago, three or four years is my estimate. The basic idea is with their success in the Netherlands, they had like bike mayors in their country but they wanted more bike mayors who would promote cycling in different cities around the world. It's a, an important but a simple message of 50 by 30, wherein 50% of all trips within the city would be by cycling by 2030. And through that message, we are out there in our own city, focusing local, but learning from the global like bicycle mayor network. And we had a meeting this morning, which we have, I think, 124 or 126 bike mayors as of today. Wow, 130 bike mayors, mostly in what area of the world? We have a good number in India. And also in South America, Mexico going down. We have, with India, I think it's 40 or 50 bike mayors. And so that's the bulk of the number of bike mayors around. Oh, interesting. Wow. What's the connection with India between uh, the Netherlands? How did that manage to take off in India? Yep. I, I don't have like the first-hand knowledge, but I think what happened was there was a few persons who were able to link with the Netherlands. And then they just spread the word to more people in India. And from there, it just grew to, again, 40 or 50 bicycle mayors. Now there's actually Bikes India. 
So they have a charitable or not-for-profit organization that's run directly out of India and they have a staff there because of the number of bike mayors in India. Is that right, Jillian? Uh, please let me know. Yeah, that, no, that's as far as I know. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, the uptake in India has been amazing. So yeah, we're fortunate to like learn from them and be able to have chats with people in India and find out what's going there for cycling and some of the similar challenges, but a lot of just not ones we've had experience with here. So pretty cool. So tell us about your duties. Give us the agenda for the next three months. Like, what does it look like? Jillian, you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, sure. I think one of the cool things about the Bicycle Mayor program is that it's very up to the individual to decide what they're going to work on. So it's that idea of the person in that city is kind of in touch with what's happening in that city or has their own sort of passion that they want to pursue. And so they can sort of make it up as they go along. We're all volunteers. So it, as much time as we want to devote to it and can devote to it. I wrote a two-year plan when I started and then COVID started about the same time that I started. So the plan sort of went out the window because a lot of it was based on meeting people and doing group rides and all those things that at least in Halifax right now, we can't do any of that. We're in a pretty serious lockdown right now. And we're, really? you know, for the last year or so. Yeah. So the next mm -hmm. few months, it's hard to predict because usually, you know, June would be the month we really promote cycling because people get their bikes out of their garages and that sort of thing. So that won't be happening, at least for me, but I think a lot of social media stuff will be happening. So RC has been great in spearheading kind of a collaboration amongst the Canadian bicycle mayors and some of the U.S. bicycle mayors. And that's something we're seeing come out of the Bikes Network right now too, is a lot of focus on collaboration with these shared issues and shared goals. So we're kind of, you know, deciding on what hashtags to use and what themes we're going to promote through May and June, because May is more the U.S. Bicycle Month, June's more Canadian Bicycle Month. So kind of doing that social media, citizen-led kind of approach to just getting people talking more about bikes. And we know from the bike boom that bikes have been like a real resource and way for people to get outside and do something different and active during COVID. So just sort of harnessing that, I think, and letting people just share their experiences. Like, where did you ride today? And I think that that visibility of cycling is something we can really harness right now and, and try to carry out of the pandemic as well. That's kind of what I'm thinking for the next couple of months. I don't know if RC, if that sort of represents your thinking as well. Yeah, it's very similar. As you said, I had a plan for the next two years for 2020 and 2021. And I had like an event, I, I still remember it, March 7th was an event which was to show a movie called Mother Load, which is directed and produced by Liz Canning, uh, an awesome movie. And I was collaborating with the city of Waterloo, our Waterloo Public Library, and our cycling advocacy group. And there was a good turnout. And we watched the movie during that time. But I noticed some hesitation of, like, on my side, but also on the participant side. And then the week after that, the lockdown started. So that was the only event from my plans that I implemented. So similar to Jillian, I just adjusted most of the plans. I still actually had some in-person event, but it was more outdoors. And the big one, which is similar to what we're planning this year, is uh, bike month. June is bike month for Canada. So I last year, I was riding with City of Waterloo mayor and one councillor. So it was outside. We didn't have masks. So we were thinking it was outside. We were like, Keeping our distance, I had my son have a GoPro and 
he was following us. So at least the mayor, the two mayors are, are seen in, in one of the videos and so on. Do they recognize you in your official capacity as bicycle mayor? Yeah, because again, I was uh, a new bicycle mayor. So that was a chance for me to introduce myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was more or mostly on, on Twitter. So it was like introducing myself, riding with the quote unquote real like city of Waterloo mayor, which is a good introduction. And he's, he's very awesome. Uh, Dave Jaworski just said, I just sent him an email and he said, okay, RC, let's ride next wow. week. And, and we were riding and it was fun. It was a great time riding with the city of Waterloo mayor. We uh, work with someone who is trying to get regular mayors to start biking so that people will see that. Yes. And I really encourage for you to do that. A short ride, even just around like a block near the city hall. It's a different message when you see someone that's our mayor riding a bike. And that's what powerful. I... Powerful. It's very, very powerful. That's what I've experienced during that bike month. And even just as I was biking around, I would pass by someone and it happened to be one of the counselors and it's the counselor for my ward. We have a number of wards here in Waterloo. And on Twitter, she just said, hey, I saw the bike mayor, I think. And I said, okay, let's go. So I just tweeted back and said, hey, that's me. And great to see you biking. So it's just being out there. But as what Jillian said, similar to Halifax or Nova Scotia, we have uh, strict COVID restrictions mm. here in Ontario, I think until June 3rd or June 4th. Mm. So it's like, we can't do a group ride. We can only do a solo ride or a, we call it like a bubble ride. So only mm. members of our household we can ride with for bike month. I'm and looking at the uh, city of Waterloo on Google Maps. Yes. Do I have yes. the right place? It's right next to Kitchener? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's surrounded by so much farmland. That's yes. amazing. It smells yeah. like manure in the mornings. Cool. I lived there for uh, nine years too. So I, I was there before there was like any cycling infrastructure. So I'm kind of jealous now, RC, when I see pictures <laughs> see from Waterloo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have so much more stuff than when I lived there. Yeah. Wow, cool. There's that momentum with the city this past, I would say two or three years. Mm -hmm. It's definitely led by our advocacy group, uh, Cycle WR. If you check out Cycle WR, you'll see some of their programs, but they've been at it for a number of years. And it's like having that advocacy group being now, after all that work, being trusted by the, the councillors, by the mayors, mm. both Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge, together with the region. So we have a regional organization that's composed of three cities and I think four or five townships. And it's to a point now that if there's a cycling-related or even just a road upgrade, they would invite Cycle WR to check it out, to give their feedback. And That's even amazing. to a point now that Cycle WR actually reviews the budget and would post a budget review. You would see it in their in Cycle WR's website. This is, I think, the ultimate for an advocate like me because I can see the plan. And then the next level is what percentage of the plan is actually implemented. So it's compared by, uh, again, Cycle WR. They would say, for example, it's a number like 10 million is the budget and let's say a certain percent that is actually implemented for cycling and so on. So, and you would see that there's a budget review for all the cities and for our region uh, in the Cycle WR website. That's great. What's the population here? Like 500,000? Uh, 500,000 for the whole region. Waterloo is about 120 or so. Mm -hmm. Kitchener is 230 mm -hmm. and Cambridge is, is similar to Waterloo, 100 something.
And how many counselors for that 100,000? How many council members do you guys have? For Waterloo, I have to check, but I think seven or eight for Waterloo. Kitchener has has definitely more. Nick, Um, do you hear that? We only get one counselor for 250,000 people or something. Oh, wow. Wow, it's it's different. And and one thing I'd like to point out there with, with the number, but also, again, I go back to Cycle WR because they've been at it for a number of years. I've just been here for a year, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So it's for me, I don't have to reinvent anything. I just have to really support them with their strengths. Mm-hmm. And if there are weaknesses, then I, I try to fill that up. One thing they did, this, this was about two years ago when there was a local election. What they did is they invited all the people running uh, as mayor or counselor to have a bike ride with them. Have a chat mm. go through parts of the city. And then ask them a set of questions about cycling. And then they would post it on their website. So as a resident, I would say, hey, ward number, I'm ward number five. These are the answers of those who are running for counselor. And there are people who are running who would not answer the question. So I also know they are not interested in cycling. So Mm -hmm. most of those who were supportive of cycling won, won in the election. Mm-hmm. So that now we have most of our council members uh, very, very supportive of cycling. That's amazing. Very and so we cool. have these organizations everywhere. I mean, we have multiple bike coalitions here. Yep. Jillian, you have your bike coalition, Halifax. Arce, you have your bike coalition. Yeah. Are, we, are these coalitions going to coalesce into a mega organization and finally rule the world? <laughs> uh I don't know if you know this or not, but we've already, like, we're the bike lobby. We already have <laughs> meetings. That's, that's a I'm just conspiracy. Kidding. That's a conspiracy. Know, I'm kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Not real. Yeah. Well, as far as anybody knows, officially. Jillian. Oh, man. There's a Walmart super center here. Darn it. <laughs> Jillian. Look at this. There's like this little cancerous asphalt crater over here by the Walmart. Yeah. And the McDonald Carter Freeway, but that's about it. Everything else looks nice and yeah, 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 livable and packed in, and then surrounded by farmland. This is all the stuff that Los Angeles should have done yep. when they had a chance. One program which is actually very important for us is a program called Hold the Line WR. So WR stands for Waterloo Region. So it's Cycle WR. There's Hold the Line WR. So we just we will not expand anymore. There's a line uh, around the Waterloo Region. So we won't expand to our farmland. Get out of here. Yeah. So land really? use planning, that's very important. It's It has to be there. And that that's why we have an LRT. We're only about 500,000. Kitchener and Waterloo has a light rail transit line, about 19 stations. And phase two will be connecting that to Cambridge. So it's a combination of, again, the LRT. We have buses now that were reallocated to cover more locations and lines. And then cycling that would be supportive of that as well that is fantastic jillian yeah, let's let's um, flip let's flip over to jillian's area of the world here yeah. i wanted to ask jillian about your writing about disability and active transportation i've seen a couple of your blogs yeah um, if you can talk about that yeah sure um i guess i can give you kind of the short version of my story is like my personal story is sort of having discovered Um, cycling as a mobility aid, essentially. I've had arthritis my whole life and just over time kind of breaks down your joints. And, you know, I 
always wanted to cycle just for environment reasons, getting around faster, that sort of thing. And I was living in Waterloo and going to grad school. I got an old mountain bike and started riding to campus and I could still walk at that time. It was speedier to ride. So I did it. And then just kind of over time, I naturally was realizing like, oh, I can't walk so much anymore, but biking doesn't hurt my ankle in particular. So I really just started relying on my bike. And then I think as a lot of us bike people do, we get pulled into advocacy around cycling because it turns out in most cities in North America, everybody has a hate on for people on bikes, no matter why they're cycling. And so I got pulled into that advocacy, but I also noticed that massive gap in sort of talking about disability and very much the assumptions around who is cycling is able-bodied people. And, you know, if you're on a bike, then you're able to do everything. And that's just not true for me. And so when you start doing a deep dive into that, it's like, well, what does somebody who's disabled riding a bike need in terms of infrastructure? And what do they need in terms of policy? And it's not necessarily the same as somebody who can easily dismount their bike when the bike lane runs out and they need to push a button to cross the street or something like that. So I think it's generally promoting good infrastructure and good policy for everybody who cycles, but especially for people like me who have more limited mobility. Otherwise, those are important issues to really talk about. I don't see in North America that we're having those conversations at a really legitimate level. Like when I tell people that I cycle and I'm disabled and I literally cannot walk down the block, I think there's still a lot of disbelief around that and a lack of understanding of that. So that's been a big focus of my bike mayor time has been sort of exploring that a little bit more and not just my personal experience, but collecting stories from other people. So with my local cycling advocacy organization, the Health X Cycling Coalition, who are phenomenal as well. RC and I are both lucky to work with really yeah. awesome advocates. They collaborated with me on doing a survey in the city and collecting stories from people and putting together a report and some infographics about what we found. And it turns out it's not just me. <laughs> There's lots of folks. And I have these conversations, you know, whenever I would end up at some sort of bike event, there'd be somebody who says, oh yeah, like I, my knees are bad now. So I, you know, I'll get on my bike to go get my coffee instead of walking there or even things like, you know, it's hard to bike with my kid, but if it's a continuous path, then I'm not as worried about it. So it's like all those mobility aspects that we haven't really talked about, but I've been able to document them a bit locally now. And a really big theme that came out in this sort of recent report was around e-bikes and how like life-changing e-bikes are for people, especially in Halifax, because we do have hills. So, you know, if you can kind of remove that barrier to entry for people getting on a bike, an e-bike can be a real game changer. And now that they're kind of exploding, I think everywhere, but definitely here, I'm hearing from even more people about I had somebody ride up behind me on the street the other day and he was like, is that an e-bike? And I was like, yeah. He's like, where did you get it? Like my wife needs one because she's got balance issues and that looks perfect. And I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. 
So those are the kinds of stories that I'm trying to pull out and highlight and talk about so that we can shift that conversation. Because another thing is Halifax infrastructure for cycling is decades behind where it should be. But it also means we have an opportunity to like really get it right now because we're just planning things. So if we could really design the like the highest standard to think more about these types of people that engineers aren't used to thinking about so much, that's really where I'm trying to kind of push and it's exhausting but I'm pushing so probably answered your question in that little rant <laughs> absolutely and so what would you say to other bike mayors and even people who are thinking of becoming bike mayors about what it means and why to do it because it seems like you're getting a lot out of it yeah, I think it can be a real way to challenge like your own passions about cycling. And I think it's pretty standard in the bicycle marinette. We're focused on this bicycles for transportation. And some people do go for long rides and where they're like riding, whatever. And that's cool. But like the focus is really that sort of urban, like I need to get the kids to daycare kind of stuff. And so there's real opportunities for people to get involved in that way. And we're having within the network, we're talking about what the gender issues are. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about disability because that's the thing I care about. But I think, you know, as a network, we're sort of growing that capacity to, to think more broadly about a really wide part of the population that, that could be cycling, but for various reasons isn't because traditional planning has not thought of bikes as transportation for for everybody and I know not everybody can ride a bike but a lot more people can ride a bike than than kind of what we're currently enabling so I think yeah if people are interested in being bicycle mayors like totally reach out and we'll happily chat with anyone do you guys have like materials sort of bank or cloud drive somewhere where you can pull materials and use them maybe like customize them for your city and then approach your local politicians and say, hey, I'm part of this program. Right, here's our official mission statement and let me tell you about it, you know, and support each other in that sense. This is very interesting and it seems like it could work. Yeah, like, totally. Bikes, bikes <laughs> just, has all kinds of like that, those kinds of resources for mm-hmm. folks to use. And there's a lot of collaboration across the network now. So yeah, you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you become I'm a sure. bicycle mayor. Mm-hmm. Cool. We're going to have another interview with a bicycle mayor. Let me just double check the notes here. It's actually somebody um, from BYCS, the communications director, Lucas. Cool. We have a, we have a pre-recorded interview with Lindsay Sturman, who did an interview with Lucas. How do I pronounce that last name? I haven't yeah. ever had to say his Luke last yeah, name. Yeah. I just say Lucas. <laughs> Lucas. Yep. Is he Dutch? Is that a Dutch name? I think he's French. It's not like a French, French name that I'm familiar with. Well, we'll find out in a minute, but um, I want to get your your social media hits. Arcee's trying to say something about Lucas. Yeah, Lucas is multilingual. The webinar, once you break out, I'm just so lucky to join him. And there was a time I was in the Spanish speaking group. So it's like the Mexico and going down. And I would say, do I click, do I go in? Because I know some Spanish, but I clicked on Spanish and there was Lucas. And he was like (laughs) naturally just translating between Spanish and English. And I was saying... Lucas, you're awesome. <laughs> and, uh, so he's one of those who are in the bike staff team. That's been very helpful. And again, an awesome team member. Cool. Cool. Well, let's get both of your social media hits that you want to promote 
so we, people can get in touch and uh, we'll take you guys out and we'll bring in uh, Lindsay and Lucas. So RST, do you want to give us some uh, social media hits where people can find your contact? Yeah, for me, it's uh, mainly at Twitter. It's Bike Mayor Watt, that's W-A-T for Waterloo. And my email, uh, feel free to send me an email. It's also bikemayorwatt at gmail.com. And we are promoting Bike Month next month. So it's a lot of Bike Month related stuff during the next month. Thanks. Very good. And Jillian? Yeah, I am also mostly on Twitter and it's honestly the easiest way to get in touch with me no matter what you're doing. So Bike Mayor HFX. Okay. I look at both these cities on Google. Every time we do a show some <laughs> other city, I want to go visit. I mean, yeah, it looks, when it's yeah, safe, you guys come on in over. Particular, yeah. It looks like there's just really good planning throughout Canada. No, a lot of it, it's an illusion. What I'm seeing, no, okay, okay. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking here. at Halifax. I see a whole bunch of like farmland and green around this sort yeah, of. Yeah, just Google <laughs> Africville, and you'll learn some stuff about our historical planning problems. Okay. Yeah, I see another Walmart super center over oh, there. Oh, yeah. You will not escape by... the Walmart. <laughs> yeah. You can just find it from way up above. You see yeah. a little gray dot. And you have a <laughs> giant parking lot. And there's a McDonald's. And... Yep. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, so there's a little bit of cancer in there. But yeah. <laughs> overall, it still looks a lot better than a lot of the things we're doing here in the United States. Anyways, we want to get you guys back on and talk about bike mares in the future. So hopefully we can have you guys back. Sounds great. Yep. Yes. Cool. Thanks for thanks so much. Uh, Thank you. Thanks bro. for giving us the update. Awesome. Thanks. Thank have you. A good Well, Lucas Snage, thank you so much for being on Bike Talk. Today we have Terrence Houston is co-hosting with me, Lindsay Sturman. And Lucas, you are the content and communications manager of Bikes, spelled B-Y-C-S. And you're working mostly with research editorial programs and transnational bike advocacy. That is correct. Yeah, thanks for having me. It really all kicked off with the appointment of Amsterdam's first bicycle mayor, uh, Anna Luton. Really, we envisioned this as a member, a representative member of the community that could liaise between government stakeholders, the civil society, but also businesses and all organizations involved in cycling to make sure that everyone's needs and desires were considered by policy. It actually came from the concept of the nightmare that was already existent in Amsterdam uh, that had a similar function, a member of society wanted to kind of ease conversations between businesses, clubs, bars, and governments and cool. neighbors. And our founder thought that this would be really important for cycling. The total share of cycling here is 30%. That creates a lot of problems as well in terms of congestion, safety. All of these things need to be maintained. It's not just this wonderful utopian cycling landscape. Things need to be readjusted and reconsidered and iteratively developed in a sustained uh, manner over time constantly so well, now you're breaking my heart because i thought it was simply <laughs> cycling heaven you know i think Lindsay and i mostly we just this is just like a vehicle for us to ask you to adopt us so we can get to the <laughs> netherlands no but you see i think that's a really interesting point that you make because people often think that amsterdam has always been this kind of utopian cycling land where everybody cycled but 
if you look at the like even photos of Dutch cities in the 50s and the 60s, uh, when kind of the whole system of automobility was becoming pervasive in all parts of the world, or in, at least in most industrial parts of the world, the Dutch kind of lost a ton of cycling mode share during that time. Public spaces were parking lots like you see today in a lot of US cities. People were cycling less. People were dying. And what happened is that in the 70s, thing in like 1971, over 450 kids under the age of 14 were killed by cars. People kind of stood up and were like, they, there was a movement called Stop the Kindermord, literally meaning stop killing our children, led by women, mothers that just were every week protesting against the domination of the private vehicle in the city that had created worse air quality, no space for children to play in the street, all of those things that you see in cities that have really prioritized the cars for decades. And the government listened. At that time, there was 1973 oil crisis. The government was trying to think about how to decrease dependence on oil. But it really boils down to strong voice from civil society accompanied by the right political will. And then what you see unfold today in terms of like this cycling utopia is 20, 30 years of sustained investment in cycling, active transportation, public transportation, and reducing and limiting the space for cars in the city. It's doable. And the Dutch weren't just born into this. They have committed to it. Inspiring. So in terms of the bike mayor program, can you explain how it works and how does LA get one? It's kind of like a figurehead, a representative of the cycling community that can voice the broader concerns of people that use bikes for transportation in the city to different stakeholders and be that bridge between public sector, civil society, but also businesses, etc. And then what we do is we connect those bicycle mayors together. So we create working groups on particular topics that could have relevance in like a cross-cultural context. There are a lot of similarities in the challenges that are faced by bike advocates, but also planners in the city. And so learning from others is really important there. So we set up working groups, we facilitate network connection and the sharing of best practices and resources and stuff like that. And what it also does is that it creates a transnational movement around the need for cycling not just as transportation, but as social transformation, showing that whether you're in Mexico, whether you are in Italy, whether you are in the US, or whether you are in India, having more people on bikes in their daily lives will bring about cleaner air, child-friendly cities, local economic development, resilience, health, mental health benefits, all of these things that are super simple. It's a 200-year-old invention that has been, and I'm very glad to see it kind of take a more center stage in the recent year, but that has essentially been kind of left as a secondary consideration by a lot of city planners when it's so simple, cheap, and reliable that it can bring about really, really like a systemic change in the way that movement in our city happens. I think one of the things that I was really impressed with about going through the website of your org is how it seems to create these toolkits for advocates, for lack of a better term, where all of these great talking points and arguments and data are grouped in one place. Because I know that when I first started doing advocacy for bike lanes in Los Angeles or defending a road diet in Los Angeles, you felt like you were starting from scratch trying to get all the professional information of best practices and why it was a good idea. And you have all these awesome case studies and such, and I would love to learn more about them. Like it said that your org was working on a study uh, linking early childhood development with riding bikes. You know, what has that study found? What we were trying to understand is, first of all, the benefits that 
facilitating active travel, in particular cycling here, could bring to caregivers. Because mm -hmm. as we know, that also touches upon a really crucial gender component to this discussion, which is most people that carry out caregiving trips in the city are women. Transportation is expensive. They trip chain more. Essentially, transit systems have been built by men and designed for men. And that has put a huge burden on 50% of our urban population. So if, for example, a caregiver can, instead of taking a bus to school, dropping the kid off, then going to run errands, then going to work, then coming back and doing that kind of constellation of trips that are expensive, but can use the bike, first of all, it's more energy efficient, it's cheaper, it's fun. We found that there were greater positive connections between very young children and their parent when they can share the experience of the city at a cognitive level and they can point to something they, they can both see together. There's just like way closer of a connection when you have a young child on the front or on the back of your bike. Something else is in terms of creativity. We found in our academic review that there was a study that showed children that rode the bike to school and children that were in their car and they were asked to draw the map their neighborhood, the ones that were on their bike could do that way better. But also in terms wow. of the way that they depicted their neighborhood, they were more creative. It's stimulating. It's something that is healthy. So when you design a city for children, everyone benefits. And if you design a city for young children, of course everyone benefits. Because if you're safe and comfortable and you have fun as you travel through the city as a child, then why shouldn't adults as well? I know some of the strong arguments in terms of getting those protected bike lanes down to South LA has been when you look at the Vision Zero program in the city of Los Angeles, the vast majority of the Vision Zero high injury network is in formerly redlined segregated neighborhoods. The most dangerous streets were designed purposely to go through communities of color. And I feel like when we add the safe infrastructure, we're actually undoing the legacy of racism and we're undoing the legacy of redlining. And um, it's a challenging balance to take because the other thing that I ran into when I was doing some ag advocacy in South LA is that often it's the people who have the most power in South LA who are actually making the decisions. When we talk about the community making a decision in South LA, it's still actually, oh, the owner of the trucking company along the route in South LA who's having the loudest voice as the community member. And trying to balance those things has been a challenge. Just to jump off where Terrence was saying, is, is there a model of community engagement where you start small? There was a very, very rapid response from the city of Oakland there that was maybe seen as too rapid. And there were also people from East Oakland that wasn't really beneficial to them. And so they worked together. I think it was this process of like iterative urbanism, as I think he's called it, where, and he gave me this wonderful analogy of when you move in with roommates into a house, you don't just put the furniture in the first place, you kind of move it around until everybody's happy with it. And then you and then you're like, okay, let's let's now sit on this couch layout. And it's also much cheaper to do it that way. Because if you start with temporary activations, thing like that, and then you work with the local community to understand, okay, if this is accepted and appreciated and needed, then you can install more permanent fixtures after that process of iteration. And that saves you a ton of money from instead of investing a lot of money into a project that in the end is not relevant to the community. And I think this type of like temporary activation or like temporary pop-up bike lanes, which were like everyone was talking about as a COVID response, is interesting. In a lot of contexts that we work in through the Bicycle Mayor Network, we've seen these as, you know, really valuable in some 
cities, like in some areas, they've been removed and others they've been made permanent. And that's where you see the value of it. If it doesn't work, then we'll take them out. If they stay, then they stay. And of course, we want them to stay and we want to create more protected cycling infrastructure. Like there really needs to be a move beyond this idea that paint is a bike lane. If you could dream big for LA, what would you like to see for bikes in LA? Space should be removed from cars. Absolutely. There are way too many areas of the city that are solely accessible if you have a private vehicle. And there's so much space that is dead in LA. And I think that that's really something that I, yeah, take back from my experience there. The amount of parking lots and idle cars that are just scattered around the landscape, which could be green space, which could be playgrounds, which could be public space, which could be wider sidewalks and protected bike lanes is staggering, which could be affordable housing as well. Imagine if you removed even just a third of all, which sounds, of course, insane, but we're, we're talking here in a more like utopian lens, a third of parking spaces in LA, what could you do with that? And I think imagining that possibility is also a conversation starter. I think there is that need to dream big to create those paradigm shifts. Any step of the way is a way forward. So for short trips in LA, the transition to the bicycle shouldn't be too difficult if there's actual political will and investment in infrastructure. It's a city that has wonderful weather to cycle <laughs> all year round. Yes. You know, I cycled back from my office to be in a quieter place. I was in the pouring rain, the Dutch cycle in the rain. But if I could do that in the sun with 20 degrees <laughs> Celsius every day, I mean, why not? And especially when you look at the numbers of short trips in, in, in Los Angeles, you know, I'm not saying that the cars will disappear in LA. LA is a city that has been built around the car. But if you invest in public transit and if you make first last mile options available, like those new mobility companies that have popped up and that you balance that with more access to bicycles, etc., then I think... You know, it can be a multimodal city. And I think that is where it should be. And I know that the Garcetti administration dreams of that, but I think we should think beyond just shared cars and autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, but really think about key amenities, closer proximity to the home, investment in those neighborhoods, and just like greater space for active transportation and that pairing that with public transportation. LA is sort of famously a city of like 400 small towns. Could you imagine going neighborhood by neighborhood, would that be enough? Or does it really have to be whole city as a network? Transit systems have been designed for the movement of able-bodied men that go to the central business district to work. And so even if you look at bus lanes or bus networks, they often go from residential areas to the economic core of those cities. But for a lot of people that don't make those trips, then they are disadvantaged in terms of their access to transportation. So I don't particularly think there should just be connectivity between the core and like residential neighborhoods in LA. There should be inter-neighborhood connectivity so that people that need to travel within their neighborhood for their daily trips or that don't necessarily need to go to downtown because they work in office building can still be safe on the streets. That's really something that is key here, not just creating those nodal corridors of access that most often favor white collar, privileged men, to be honest. And you know, what you're saying is supported by the data. 47% of trips in LA are less than three miles, which are, you <laughs> right. know, easily bikeable. So even in Los Angeles, a quote unquote car centric city. But you know, one of the interesting things about your org is that you guys don't just talk about infrastructure, but you talk about a culture of cycling. And there's some programs that I would love to learn about, like 
the Bicycle Heroes program, which was, I guess, like, how would kids design their neighborhoods? Yeah, this is a this is a really fun program. And I think that this is actually the central point of our organization. Youth are, first of all, fantastic ambassadors in general on all issues. I think if you can convince a child to become an advocate, first of all, it's the future generations. And so that's how to get the next generation to just start cycling in a more holistic manner. But also, yeah, they, they're really big spheres of influence in the family. Uh, they're really important city stakeholders. And they're extremely intuitive urban planners. We go and engage with children in schools from nine to 12 years old. And we ask them, if you could make cycling around your school and around your neighborhood safer, more comfortable and more fun, what would you do? We ask them, why do you like cycling to school? How does it make you feel? What are the greatest challenges that you face on a bicycle when you're going to school or going to a friend's house? And they sketch out ideas, they sketch out kind of solutions. We get them to really think creatively and then we kind of have a jury that selects the top ideas and then we invite them to longer workshop called like kind of a co-creation session where they can really develop those ideas that they've had. And some of them are incorporated or considered by the local planning authority. And so we create these kind of linkages between those stakeholders that are too often forgotten in the city and elevate their voices as the voices of important stakeholders in the city, get them to think about their ideas, and they figure out things that often adults overlook. Um, you know, when we were doing that report with the Bernard Van Leer Foundation on cycling for toddlers and caregivers, something that they do that's really compelling is they have a program called Urban 95, which asks city stakeholders to imagine their city from 95 centimeters and honestly mm. i suggest try doing this next time you're in the street just crouch and look how big cars look look how uncomfortable pavements can be or scary or loud or overwhelming the city can be if it is not thought from a child's perspective Tirana, the city, the capital of Albania, is doing some really good work with children. And the mayor, Erion Viljaj, always says, yeah, children are a third of my demographic. Why would I not focus on them? You know, it's a third of my population. So, of course, they deserve a third of my investment. And we forget about that. And it's unfortunate because I think the city is not comfortable for children in many parts of the world. So we saw that you have these incredible partnerships in India. We are a very small, young, Amsterdam-based advocacy group. We do not have the local knowledge or the expertise to coordinate a network that is very dynamic at a regional level or that has particular needs and challenges and solutions that are place-based. However, we do really feel that the exchange of knowledge and ideas and the circulation of that movement is really important. And so as regions grow in the network, the Bicycle Bayer Network in India has 40 member cities currently, 40 representatives from civil society there. We want to decentralize our organization. And the way that we're doing this is by setting up foundations. This is our first pilot. We incorporated Bikes India Foundation that's going to be based in Bengaluru very recently. And we have three directors there that are going to be both helping the coordination of the Bicycle Mayor Network and create exchange between them and make sure that new bicycle mayors can join and vet those new members, etc. And also conduct research, conduct place-based research that is relevant for the Indian urban context. And so that's really exciting because we don't necessarily feel comfortable from Amsterdam coordinating such a um, global network. You know, it's, it's a very Eurocentric way of thinking about this. We have learned about the power of civil society from our experience in the Netherlands, 
And we know that investing in protected bike networks is essential for safety. And that's kind of applies to, to anywhere. But the solutions for Bogota, the solutions for Mumbai, the solutions for even Milan might not be the same. Like the goal is not to Amsterdamify, but to share those learnings and those experiences. Kind of reiterate about the Bicycle Mayor Network. I think the idea here is to really create a movement of local leaders that can start growing this idea of having a representative from civil society be that bridge between different stakeholders in the city. I think elevating the voice of those stakeholders, whether they're long-term, long-time activists, advocates, etc., is really important because there's often too much focus on expertise in transportation planning, but community leaders, advocates, activists have expertise and have greater expertise than often any transit authority in terms of what is good for their neighborhood. How do you guys elect your bicycle mayors? We have this process that we've developed over the four years where the network has grown from one to 105 cities in 34 countries, where we have an application process uh, where we request three letters of endorsement from key stakeholders in the city. We also have a list of questions to prepare from the person that is interested that cover actions that as bicycle mayor, he, she, or they would like to carry out in their city, specific challenges, stakeholders that they would like to collaborate with, et cetera, that is then reviewed by the global networks team at Bikes, as well as a few members of the network already. And then we make a decision. The term is two years. The first step with getting someone in a new city is to make that role known and understood by the local community. So that's why we go about this. And as we progress, and there's still the desire to kind of retain someone within that role within the network in a city, we want to be shifting towards more, let's say, democratic ways of appointing that kind of figurehead. It is a volunteer position. We don't have a lot of demands. And so that's why we allow ourselves that space. It's really someone to represent the community that is interested in the exchange of knowledge, et cetera. For now, that's how we're going. We also have a toolkit that we've developed so that if a local organization would want to help us and get the word out about this role, then they can kind of like take it off the shelf and have everything they need to spread the word. Because obviously from Amsterdam, it's limited what we can do. We can reach out to key stakeholders, gauge interest, do some Twitter campaigns, but for it to really work, there needs to be local buy-in and we want to make it as easy as possible for an organization, let's say the LA County Bicycle Coalition, to say, hey, we'd like to make a call out in our community to find a representative member to become part of this network. How can we do it? And then we have social media templates, processes that are described, toolkits, things like that, to make that as seamless and as in the hands of the local organizations as possible. I think it's such a great organization because it feels like this organic, crowdsourced, bottom-up wisdom that meets with the top-down, you know, engineering people. And by meeting in the middle and creating this organic movement, you really get the wisdom from the ground at the same time you're marrying it with that sort of Dutch engineering. I really appreciate you sharing these great toolkits and tools and all that stuff. Yeah, no, it was lovely to chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. All right, well, you both had the same idea for Bike Talk. Seems like you, Lindsay and Don, feel that we could open up and be about other things. 
I would like to talk about Bike Talk as like a wheel with bikes being the hub and the spokes being everything else that we might talk about. Yeah. The thing about bikes is that it really does touch almost everything in our lives, either directly or indirectly. It affects our lack of ability to bike and this sort of forced car ownership that we've imposed on everyone really is tied to so many things that are just really harming us. And I'll tell you one interesting thing is I interviewed an economist for Bike Talk, which will air shortly. And he talked about how economists love bikes because they're the most perfectly efficient thing in the world. And economists love efficiency. And that image of an economist on a bike kind of stuck with me because it's sort of like Occam's razor. You know, it's like the simplest solution is often the right solution. And it's like, the bike. It's a really perfect thing that does all these amazing things for your life. And yet we hate cyclists, we hate bike lanes, and we love to bike. And yet we hate the small changes we would need to do to allow all of us to bike. I wonder what percentage of people really does have a problem with bike lanes and bikes and all the things that we need. I think that when you really dig in with people, they actually really want a bike. But we are so impacted with traffic in LA that I feel like we can't imagine our lives with more traffic and we can't quite imagine biking. I think women, speaking for myself, I'm too afraid to bike. I don't think it's safe. So it's really hard to imagine getting to a bikeable LA unless you really think about it. So I think we have all these barriers and then our elected officials, they want less traffic so badly that they really can't make the leap to bikes. What are some of the spokes that bikes connect to? Obviously, it's climate because cars are 40% of our climate emissions and bikes can radically change that. And the climate scientists are flat out saying we need bikes if we're going to really draw down our emissions and really address climate change. And if not, it's so unthinkable what we're doing to our kids. So this climate, I've been reading these statistics from Matthew Lewis, who's been on the show. He's been tweeting about, we spend $3 trillion on cars every year, Americans. It's the second biggest thing you, you spend money on outside of where you live, outside on rent or a mortgage. Two months of the money we spend on gasoline, we could pay for college for everyone. I just think it's like cars are kind of bleeding us dry. Like it's this hidden expense because also there's all these hidden expenses in cars. You'd be like, oh, well, I've got the car loan. Well, what about insurance, gas, fees, new tires, maintenance? All those expenses are just kind of hidden. So it's the number one reason we go into debt. And it's the number one reason we default on that debt. So it's killing us in terms of our household budget. And it's forcing people to stretch. And I think we all feel very stressed out about money, having enough to pay the rent. Like I've been there where like I wasn't sure how I was going to pay the rent. And the car is is kind of this thing, this albatross. And if you could just remove it, you're really putting $10,000 into the pocket of every single household who can get rid of a car. And this is not about forcing people out of their cars. It's saying, you know, giving them the option to lead, you know, a full and dignified life where they can get to their jobs and meet a friend and get across town, whether it's on a bus rapid transit or by bike. So when you want to think about like what it's doing to us financially, the lack of bikes is this massive drain. And then you get to health. Driving so much, I, I really call it traffic because I think driving is fine, obviously, and people love their cars. Cars actually make people happy, not as happy as bikes, but they do make people happy. But when we're sitting in traffic, what it does to our health. 
it makes us overweight, it makes us obese. Driving to work versus biking to work, you are doubling your chances of getting cancer and heart disease. For every person who could switch to biking and get out of a car, that would cut their healthcare expenses by 20%, which would be enough to have a public option to have Medicare for all. So we're talking about these not just enormous healthcare expenses that raise our taxes, which a lot of the country really cares about. It's also killing our health. And then there's our mental health. And I've had kids with ADHD. It's, it's really hard. That can really decrease if they can walk and bike. It is road rage is literally in the DSM. Like it's considered a psychological problem to go into road rage. Domestic violence goes up 8% on the heaviest traffic days. Traffic is slowly making us crazy. And then there's the housing angle. And somebody put it perfectly to me the other day. They said, remember, we used to live in LA where you could live in a garden apartment, you know, those courtyard apartments um, and the rents were really low. I'm talking like pre-1950s, pre-car, right? You could live off Hollywood Boulevard in a little garden apartment and walk down to Hollywood Boulevard and get on a trolley and go anywhere you needed. 101 was supposed to be a bike lane. <laughs> so we lived in this world where you could live in a wonderful little housing unit, shared housing unit, and take a trolley everywhere. We can't build those anymore because you have to put in parking and boom, that makes them too expensive to build. They don't pencil out. So it also means that you go into neighborhoods with any kind of density and the parking's atrocious. So somebody said you can have density of people or density of cars and you can't have both. And if you're gonna live in a city, you want density of people because you want people around. You wanna to go to stores and cafes and see humanity. It's like, it's what it means to live in a city. And so these parking minimums are making it impossible to build the best kind of gentle density, this amazing kind of housing. And then it's also creating another vicious cycle where traffic is so awful, people become NIMBYs and don't want more housing in their neighborhoods. They're like, I cannot deal with one more car. Meanwhile, we have 40 to 60,000 homeless people and we need 500,000 more units of housing to meet our state goals. How on earth are we going to absorb 500,000 cars? So by not giving people the option to bike, we are making it also impossible to build housing. So those are the my top reasons <laughs> that lack of bike lanes is actually really affecting so many things we care about. Yeah. Don, did you want to add to those? You know, I'm always trying to find a way to sell to the opposition. And it's like, I hear a slam dunk right there. It's like people that complain about traffic, NIMBYs, so-called NIMBYs, like they do have a point in that the new development is just more sprawl, which is more traffic because it's designed poorly because there's no density. It's just like sprawling, single family zoned housing. So they do have a point. They just don't realize that density should be built where we've already ruined the land, like downtown Los Angeles, Los Angeles metropolitan we need density here. But rural areas in wild areas, we should be working to preserve that because right now they're doing things like they're okaying the Tijon Ranch development, which is 25,000 unit development. It's way out there and it's like, what are they gonna build? Are they gonna build another sprawling single family 
housing development that generates traffic? Or are they going to build it smart where it's like pedestrian oriented and you can walk to the market and do your daily tasks without having to get in the car? That's what I'm curious about. There's places where you can agree like with NIMBYs, like, yeah, preserving wild space is important, especially when all that gets built there is single family housing sprawl, which causes traffic. Anyway, that's my two cents. As we push people out, then they have to drive into their jobs. So we actually just yes. create more traffic. Bike Talk interviewed Alex Fish, right? And he's the mayor of Culver City. And he's just really good on bike. He said 40,000 more people work in Culver City than live in Culver City. He pointed out that there are 40,000 people who can find a job in Culver City, but have been pushed out of living there. And then they're just driving through everyone else's neighborhoods into Culver City. We're sort of creating insanity. Okay, so there's some kind of fundamental cognitive dissonance, I don't know what you call exactly. it, where, where NIMBYs don't understand that having safer roads and slower roads in their neighborhood is a good thing where having less people drive through your neighborhood is a good thing or somehow they're not connecting it with bike infrastructure and pedestrian safety and that kind of stuff like it's really weird for their own neighborhoods too some people just don't doesn't connect for them i see this a lot in like the colorado boulevard beautiful colorado metro brt discussion it's exactly what you said it's cognitive dissonance it's like we're caught in this conundrum where we want to get the cars through the system, the streets, as fast as possible, but the speed is actually preventing us from using the streets in any other way. Once you tell people that, I feel like once you point out that at 20 miles an hour, if you get hit by a car, you have a 90% chance of surviving. At 35, 40 miles an hour, you have a 10% chance of surviving. It becomes lethal. And those 15 miles an hour of somebody else driving through my neighborhood, why am I concerned about that? Why am I risking my life and destroying my community so that somebody else can drive through it fast? I think people, like commuters, they, they speed through everybody else's neighborhood. They hate it when people speed through their neighborhood. But when it comes to like really speaking out, I think they feel some kind of like cultural acceptance or something where it's like, well, I speed through everybody else's neighborhood. So I guess they got speed through my neighborhood or something. I don't know. That brings up such a good point that if we could help people see, and I think they're seeing it because I think COVID woke us all up to the idea that having fewer cars and slower cars and making the streets safe is just life-changing. It means that you can let your kid, this is, this is a concept that's out there from slow street advocates that like, how amazing if your kid could bike to a friend's house and you don't have to watch your phone with dread. This is what a parent said to me, to see if the phone stops moving because they've been hit by a car. If kids could safely get to a friend's house, you don't have to drive them. And it also means that they have this incredible independence. So this idea, once people start to see themselves, and I think the key is a beach cruiser <laughs> with a basket. Once they can see themselves going to a farmer's market, or somebody said, during COVID, I got out my old beach cruiser and I put a bottle of wine in the basket and I'd ride over to a friend's house. And it's like, yeah, like that's a great <laughs> way to live, right? I saw a lot <laughs> of that you can during COVID. I live in a super suburban area 
and there were people out for walks on their bikes like it was crazy it was definitely an abnormal amount of people and not much traffic is so blissful wasn't it blissful that's the perfect word and it also this friend of mine said yeah and then i would be 45 minutes late to having a drink with a friend because i'd have to stop and say hi to so many people but she loved it it's like suddenly you're talking to friends and neighbors and connecting and it's like what is the purpose of life is it to get in a car to see somewhere <laughs> We brought it. See, Nick, okay, Nick, that's one of the spokes on the wheel. Is what is the purpose of life? That's definitely one of the spokes on the wheel. Throw it on there. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Bikes and the meaning, the purpose of <laughs> Yeah. With just that statement, with Lindsay's statement right there, we brought it to Bill and Lightning. Maybe it should be the positive purposes of life, like joy, right? I know, right? Bikes lead to joy. They lead to beautiful streets because you can slow down the cars and you can plant trees and put in bike lanes. They lead to healthy air, right? They lead to more money because <laughs> you have more money in your pocket if you don't have to buy a car. I'm sure there's a better way of saying that. It leads to looking better, feeling better, right? Like you feel great if you bike every day. You're happier. You have better mental health. And it leads to housing surplus. So Rents are low and landlords don't get to squeeze people as much. How about a fewer wars because of oil? Yeah. Undermining Russia <laughs> and the GOP. <laughs> when progressives in LA fight bike lanes, or let's just say our elected leaders don't lead on bike lanes, they're essentially carrying water for the Koch brothers, ExxonMobil, right? Russia, MBS. They, they're in bed with them in a way they don't really realize. And I'm not saying that they realize this, and I think they don't realize it, because cars are useful. They get us to our jobs. They are aspirational. Um, they're fun. They make, us, they make us happy. But I think that the distinction I keep trying to make in my own mind is between how much a person might love their car, what it means to them, and the freedom it brings them, right? But then what traffic does to us and how that ruins our day and makes us depressed so thanks lindsay sure we sound like cultists you know how like people call us a bike cult i think we really do sound like that we're so joyous about bikes and yeah it's just it's bliss you know bicycles <laughs> are bliss Shows I care Every turn of the pedal Cleans the air Green in the green I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet No greenhouse gas A tiny carbon footprint Up your ass I'm on a motherfucking bike Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk If you want to hear more Go to kpfk.org Navigate to Programs and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the Archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 